Don't forget. I begin with a quote from the richest man in the world, Bill Gates. He says this. In this business, by the time you realize you're in trouble, it's too late to save yourself. Unless you're running scared all the time, you're gone. End quote. He was talking about the computer business. And he says, by the time you realize you're in trouble, it's too late. You need, he says, you need to run scared all the time. He means you need to uh, be always on the alert uh, so that you prevent yourself from being overtaken by something. We need to stay alert and deal decisively with things before they overtake us, or worse yet, uh, unless we're, we're left behind in some way. The Bible is the best book of advice that ever existed. It underscores the wisdom that Bill Gates mentions. Today we're going to look together at a massive illustration of the wisdom of dealing with matters well and early on, lest they come up and bite you later. That's what this issue is. Today's Haftorah, let's see, what, let's, see, let's see what we got here. No. Today's Haftorah speaks about three leaders. One who was evil, one who was ineffectually weak, and one who was decisive and effective. Three leaders. One who was evil, one who was ineffective, ineffectual and weak, and one who was decisive and very effective. These three leaders, of course, are Agag, king of the Amalekites, Saul, the king of the Jews, and Samuel, the prophet of Israel. They have much to say that underscores Bill Gates's call to alertness and decisiveness in our own lives. Let's begin with the Amalekites. Let's begin with King Agag, the king of the Amalekites. Amalek, his ancestor, is viewed traditionally to be the grandson of Esau. And Agag, the king of the Amalekites, would later become the ancestor of Haman, of Haman, one of Israel's most implacable enemies. The tribe of the Amalekites, as we saw this morning, are mentioned in the Torah on several occasions. The most significant one is by their surprise attack on the Israelites as they were coming out of Egypt. The attack led to the divine commandment to destroy Amalek. God said this, remember what Amalek did unto you on your way when you came forth out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and smote the hindmost of you, all who were feeble in the rear, those who were faint and weary, and he did not fear God. Therefore it shall be, when Hashem your God has given you rest from all your enemies all about in the land that he gives you, uh, you are to blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven, and you shall not forget. But what is one to do today? What are we to do with a commandment like this? A divine commandment to commit genocide. Wipe out Amalek, men, women, children, 
babies, animals, the whole schmear. What do we do with it? For Orthodox Jews, for whom all 613 commandments of the Torah are very important, the command to blot out Amalek must retain some form of meaning. But what is it? And the meaning differs from interpreter to interpreter. So I'm going to give you uh, uh, three interpretations that are assigned to this. Let's see what we got now. Oh, look at that. There's our three leaders. Well, it's still it's still a bit of a mess. Thank you. I'm going to talk about uh, three interpretations. The first one is to regard it as a dormant duty. Something like the commandments relative to the, the building, the, to the temple, the things you had to do when the temple stood. The temple doesn't stand anymore. So those commandments don't have any application now because the conditions in which they applied no longer stand. Similarly, there are no Amalekites anymore. Uh, and uh, traditional Judaism says, if the Amalekites should return to the world, then something needs to be done. And some say that uh, the identity of Amalek will only be known when the Messiah comes. This is what they say. We won't know who the people of Amalek are until Elijah, the prophet, comes and tells us. And then we will wipe out all resemblance of Amalek from under heaven. So the first possibility of how religious Jews deal with this terrifying command is we don't know who Amalek is anymore, so we can't really apply it. So it's dormant. The second interpretation is represented by the Hebron massacre carried out by a man named Baruch Kopel Goldstein. He was an American Jew. He was a doctor. I never knew that until I researched this recently. He was a doctor. And he, he was, had made Aliyah. He lived in Israel. And he was rabidly anti-Arab. He would not treat Arabs. He would not treat even Druze, who were not Muslims. He wouldn't treat them. He, and one year, Purim coincided with the Muslim feast of Ramadan. Now, Goldstein lived in Hebron, also known as Kiryat Arba. And in Kiryat Arba, there's a cave called the Cave of Machpelah. This is where Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Rivka, and Leah are all buried there. It's the second holiest place in Jewish life. But it's also holy to the Arabs because the Arabs venerate Abraham, whom they call Ibrahim. They, they venerate him. So on this particular day, 800 uh, Arabs came in to this shrine in order to pray. Now Baruch Goldstein, whose understanding of the blood the, the uh, commandment to blot out Amalek was that wherever you find anyone who you view to be the implacable enemies of the Jews, you ought to wipe them out. That was his interpretation. So he went in there and he killed, let me see, I have the statistics here. He opened fire with his rifle. He killed 29 people. He wounded 125 Palestinian Muslim worshippers, including children. 
and then he was beaten to death by the survivors of the massacre. The massacre was roundly condemned by Israeli authorities and by Jewish communities around the world, although some real radicals uh, thought he was a hero. <coughs> Goldstein and those who agreed with his Kahanist, um, Meyer Kahana's uh, party, religious party, Kach, a political party, Kach, was outlawed as a consequence of this because Goldstein was an adherent of their philosophy. They equated Amalek with enemies of the Jews, attributing the legal status of Amalek to any group that aligns itself against the Jewish nation. So that's the second interpretation. The first one is to say, well, the category of Amalek doesn't exist anymore. The second interpretation is to say, go for it. Whenever you find anybody who's the enemy of the Jews, we should kill them before they kill us. And there are still people in the world who think this. Foolish people, naive people, people probably who've never seen bloodshed in their lives, but they talk big. There's a third interpretation. The third interpretation removes the concept of Amalek from the physical world entirely, and it recasts it as an idea. Let's talk about that. This would involve Amalek being equated with anti-Semitism, for example. It's our duty to wipe out anti-Semitism, all ideologies that are dangerous to the Jewish people. Wipe out anti-Semitism, for example. Reform Rabbi Sylvia Rothschild broadens the term a bit. She applies it more generally to blotting out all injustice and all inhumanity. All injustice and all inhumanity. See, she sees Amalek as symbolic of injustice and inhumanity. And for us to blot out Amalek means to blot out injustice and inhumanity, not just towards the Jews, but towards everyone, wherever we find it. She says this, our tradition paints a picture of Amalek as one who will hurt for the sheer pleasure of hurting, who will destroy aimlessly, who desires no benefit from the destruction or mutilation of the other, but who'll do it anyway. The word describes the one who is the antithesis of, the, of godly in that they see no humanity in the other. They recognize no common bond between people. They care not one whit for the feelings or the emotions of the stranger. The Amalekite is estranged from relationship alienated from a sense of shared ancestry, views others as commodities or objects. It is a state of being we can all slide into on occasion. We too can be Amalek. And I want to say I've seen Amalek in our society. I've seen Amalek on Facebook. As we celebrate the glory of those who tried to murder, as we celebrate the gory end of those who tried to murder us, as we relieve ourselves of some of the stress of a minority existence among people who resist our particular difference, let's spare a thought for the Amalekite, the Amalek inside each one of us, the characteristics of selfishness, of conceit, of narrow-mindedness, of willful ignorance and insensitivity to the pain of others. Our world contains violence and famine, slavery, hatred, huge discrepancy between rich and poor, warfare, oppression, 
If that isn't the presence of Amalek, I don't know what is. That's what Sylvia Rothschild says. She's got something to say to us. But what about us? What about our own lives? In addition to this excellent advice of Rothschild, I have some more advice for us. Here's what I suggest. We all have Amalek inside of us, each of us, as well as in each of our groups, our congregations, various affiliations. In such a construct, we might take Amalek to be a, a symbol of, of focused evil. God calls upon us to deal with such evil decisively and thoroughly, as was his commandment to the Jewish people and to Saul. When you find evil rising up within you, deal with it. Yeshua mirrors this mentality for us in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5. He says something very similar when he says this. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members uh, uh, than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. This is very radical, decisive language, reminiscent of God's instructions about dealing with blotting out Amalek. If Amalek is a symbol of focused, irremediable evil, then Saul is a symbol of ineffectual weakness. At the very best, Saul's approach to dealing with irremediable evil was a form of tokenism. But isn't that true in our own lives as well? Don't we deal with the bad things in our lives sometimes in a kind of tokenism? Are there not areas of evil, of sin, of compromise in our lives, which we know God has called us to deal with? Deal with it. Instead, we deal with it ineffectually, making only a token effort to deal with our stuff. And in our organizational or congregational lives, are there not times when we tolerate things that are intolerable, put off dealing with things far too long? Yes, my friends, all of us are too often like Saul. We too often make token efforts to deal with things that should have been dealt with radically. In the context of the Purim story, it is Saul's failure to deal decisively with Agag, the king of the Amalekites, that accorded him the chance to procreate before being dispatched, becoming the ancestor of Haman the Agagite, who almost entirely wiped out the Jews of Persia. Similarly, we can never know the long-range consequences of our ineffectual weakness and our indecisiveness in dealing with the evil that crops up in our lives. We never know what it's going to cost us eventually. So it's good to deal with it and get rid of it. Finally, we've talked about Agag. Secondly, we've talked about Saul. Now let's talk about Samuel. Notice how decisive he is in dealing with matters here. First in confronting the waffling Saul, and then in dealing with Agag. Coming right after the passage that was read this morning, we read this. Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned. I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and I obeyed their voice. He's passing the buck to the people. What a pathetic figure. Now, therefore, I pray you pardon my sin. 
return with me so that I may worship the Lord. Saul now makes it very religious. He says, I really want to worship God. I want to use all these animals to worship God. Help me out here. Uh, the people got the best of me. Pathetic. Shemesh said to Saul, I will not return with you. For you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king of Israel. Samuel said, bring forward to me King Agag of Amalek. Agag approached him with faltering steps, and Agag said, ah, bitter death is at hand. Samuel said, as your sword has bereaved women, so shall your mother be bereaved among, be bereaved among women. And Samuel cut him down before the Lord at Gilgal. Now, we don't like this story. It's kind of icky. But it has something major to teach us. The contrast between someone who deals in a token effort who's better at making excuses than at making arrangements. Some of us, and I've been this too, too it's dangerous if your best talent is making excuses. You are Saul. Contrast this with King David. King David was also confronted by a prophet when David had sinned. He had sinned with Bathsheba. And Nathan, the prophet, comes to him, and he tells him a little story about a man who had one little lamb, and the guy next door had a whole flock of them. And the man who had one little lamb, the, but the guy next door decided he wanted that one little lamb, and he took that lamb and he killed it. David said, that man should die. And Nathan says, you're the man. And then, he's, then he tells him what he's done. He's taken the wife of Uriah and then had Uriah killed. Now, how does David respond? He says, I have sinned against the Lord. Chatate Ladonai. Two words in Hebrew. Uh, Saul had a whole, whole paragraphs of justification, of explanation, you know, of justification of what he had done, of passing the buck. But David, God bless him, he sinned grievously, but when he was confronted, he said, I've sinned against God. That's why he was, continued to be a man after God's own heart. G. Campbell Morgan, a famous preacher, wrote about David that the important thing about David was not that he fell, but what direction he was facing when he got up. Brilliant advice. So, finally, there will always be Agags and Amaleks in our own lives, in our own context. Irremediable evils God has called us to cut down, evils, in this, evils around us, evils even in ourselves. The only question is, will we be a soul? Or will we be a Samuel? That's the question. Deuteronomy 25 told us, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. So let's all be Samuels, dealing decisively with the evils in our lives. And not like Saul, who thought it was harmless to keep King Agag as a pet. No. Let's live decisively. You shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. Father, these are sobering words, but life 
is um, life is no game. Life is serious business. How we live our lives is the most serious thing imaginable. And living our lives like Saul, who had every advantage. He was the first king of Israel. He was handsome, beloved. He was even talented. But his best talent was making excuses. And God said early on, I can't work with this guy. Help us not to be Saul. Help us to be like David. People who even when we sin grievously, even when we've really blown it, may we be the people who say, that's me. I sinned. I was wrong. That's the kind of persons you can deal with. Help us to deal with our stuff. Help us to deal with the stuff around us and not be tolerant of what we should not tolerate. May we blot out Amalek from under heaven and not forget. We ask you this in Yeshua's name. Amen. Well, my friends, that was a sobering word. The good news, 